Well, good afternoon. I hope everyone enjoyed a fantastic lunch. I know I have the privilege to be able to speak after lunch, so uh, uh, don't worry. I only have about 15, 20 pages thereabouts of notes for you all. So we'll see how that goes. Talking about meeting on the Internet, uh, you know, surprisingly, you know, I've been able to find this church uh, um, just through some some Internet um, searches, and I found Bobby and the church here. Uh, my wife and I actually met via the Internet. So it's it, that was 20-plus years ago. So at the advent of the Internet, of Al Gore inventing the Internet, my wife and I met. So it's... The, the the one concern her mother had as we met for the very first time was make sure he's not an axe murderer. That was that was her concern. So anyways, um my title for this message as we close out today is Contending for the Faith from the Seduction of Syncretism, a layman's perspective. Uh, we're going to be looking in 2 Kings 17, 7 through 18 today. I want to set this up first as we look back in history, and I, I am a lover of history. I teach a class uh, up on the north side of Cincinnati history. I've always had a passion for it. My, my father instilled this inside of me. And another thing I love, I love church history as well as just world history too. Uh, one of the things as I was thinking about this message today was I was looking back at the late 19th century and the Church of England that ex- was experiencing a drift away from the true gospel. The spirit of the age was ushered in by the Enlightenment, humanism, skepticism, higher criticism, progressivism, rationalism, all sorts of isms, right? We can keep on going and going on here. These worldly philosophies began to creep inside the church as well. Unfortunately, the church's attitude didn't recognize the dangers of the blurring of the lines between the world and the gospel, but merely wanted to update the message to be in step with the times. We've heard those those same things nowadays, don't we? You know, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Similar type of language that they were dealing with here. In 1887, a man uh, uh, by the name of Robert Schindler wrote uh, that the church that Matthew Henry once pastored ushered in, at this time frame, the tadpole of Darwinism. The tadpole of Darwinism. Charles Darwin and his family would go to the same church that Matthew Henry once pastored. It was this once faithful church that would receive there where Charles Darwin would receive his religious instruction and begin to embrace the many errors taught from this church's pulpit. What would become to know, be known as the downgrade controversies, these churches would reject the inspiration of the Bible, deny the Trinity, reject original sin, deny the virgin birth, and many other doctrinal truths came into question, and they replaced that with what the world had to say. Doctrinal issues became secondary, and unity was primary amongst the free evangelical churches of England. Charles Spurgeon now found himself embroiled in this downgrade controversy. He could not tolerate the heresy for the sake of unity. However, later in the half of his ministry, very few held his same convictions. Spurgeon would disassociate from the Baptist Union 
he refused to fellowship with the churches that rejected the truth and decided to continue to contend for the faith. This was not without controversy, and many of his once good friends left him and ridiculed him. Throughout time, few have been willing to stand up for the truth and contend for the faith once delivered for the saints. Syncretism, which is it seeks to mix different religions, ideologies, beliefs, and practices into one. That's the definition of synchronism. You will hear me use the word worldliness sort of to interject while I'll use these sort of vacillate between the word between syncretism and worldliness. When God's people embraces syncretism, it leads to the rejection of truth, compromise, and assimilation to the surrounding culture. It is much easier to conform to the world than be obedient to the remain and remain only of the, uh, sorry, it's much easier to conform to the world than be obedient to the word of God. The church's rapid decline was swift in England here. And by the end of World War I, very few gospel-centered churches were left. So within one generation, the gospel message in England was gone. Therefore, this issue has been problem uh, it, rooted in unbelief. Today's church is no different than the times of Spurgeon or the first century churches or the churches the, or, or the people of the Old Covenant. This issue has been with us since the dawn of time, unbelief and the mixture of other ideologies, religious practices. So in our selected passage today out of 2 Kings 17, it is in the final years, the waning years of the northern kingdom of Israel, we see a people so compromised that God judges them and sends them in exile. So, as we look at this, will you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful to be here together or in your midst. We do ask a blessing upon this service as we dive into your word, as we seek out what is your gospel message and the effects that the world has on your church and your people. Lord, help us to root these out. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be Bible-based in absolutely everything that we do. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're gonna, I'm going to start reading in 2 Kings 17, 7 through 23. And to set us up here before I move in, uh, a brief historical context is... Um, King Hoshea is the last northern king of Israel before Assyria would invade and take over. Verse 7 says, For it, so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the statues of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God, and they built them high places in all their cities, from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. And they set them up in images and groves and every high hill and under every green tree. And they there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them, and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not 
do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways and keep your commandments and my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks like the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies by which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were around about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should do or should not do like them. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images even to calves and made a grove and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and used divination and enchantment and sold themselves to evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So up to this point, as we think about the history of Israel, King Solomon was the last king to have a unified Israel. He was wealthy. He was wise. He built the temple of the Lord. This, this ideal kingdom didn't last for very long, even underneath Solomon's reign. He soon took on foreign wives. He began to, to take on foreign gods. And by 1 Kings 11, uh, things had soured so much that he would be told that he would eventually lose his kingdom through his sons. That there would be a division that would take place. After the split, the ten northern tribes established the kingdom, which we would know as the kingdom of Israel, and were led by Jeroboam. And Jeroboam would sort of be the baseline, the baseline of the standard for all the northern kings there. So if, they, if the word of God says, you know, and they did, uh, in accordance, did evil in accordance with the kings of, of Israel, that standard was Jeroboam, who would establish a new type of religion. He would uh, ha- set up two calves, and there would be a syncretistic type of flavor to this new religion. They would not go to Jerusalem to worship God any longer. That would take place in Samaria there. So King Hosea, 200 years later, would come to become king. And um, as we see in verse 1, um, he would reign for about nine years. Hosea was wicked, but not to the same degree that the other kings were. And the Bible isn't very specific here earlier uh, before our passage we read. It's not very specific as to why he isn't considered as wicked as the other kings. Uh, he, did king, he did assassinate the king prior to him. So if we're thinking baseline Jeroboam's way down here and you're not as bad and you still killed off the king, you know, that baseline of how bad Jeroboam was is really far down the ladder there, is it not? He was a wicked guy. To be called walking in the way of the kings of Israel was a derogatory term used in uh, the word of God here. It was not good to be put on par with these wicked kings. And in the seventh year of the reign of Hosea, Assyria besieged the northern kingdom of Israel. We find that in chapter 18, verse 9. And the king of Assyria 
forced Hosea, Hosea to pay tribute once he invaded there. Hosea would then align with King So of Egypt, who supported uh, him against Assyria, and this didn't work out well for him. In fact, it angered Assyria, in which they would take over and uh, exile all of Israel. They would be besieged for several years, and the ten tribes exiled into Assyria, we would no longer hear of them ever again. They are gone, extinct, non-existent. All that would remain are the two tribes left out of Judea there. Most of this selection of the chapter is an explanation that we did read of justification for God's action against Israel. Verses 7 through 8 here. The reason that God judged Israel is that they feared other gods. They had syncretized to the world around them, or they became worldly in the way that they thought and practiced and and how they acted. They, they, They talked like, they acted like, and thought like the nations that surrounded them. And this was exactly what God had warned against them to do, to to take on these other nations to they were called to be a particular a peculiar people not to act in the same ways and customs and traditions as these other surrounding nations it was a clear violation of their idolatry they were uh, of the first and second commandment you shall have no other gods before me exodus 20 we think of the ten commandments there they were in clear violation of this They were completely and utterly compromised at this point of King Hosea. They had rejected God's law and became like the very nations that they dispossessed instead of God's chosen people. And they did this in secret. This is interesting. As we look here in verses 9 through 12 as well, they did these things in secret. So there's some element of of they, they they had a double mind. In, in secret, they were setting up these, these idols and worshiping them. However, maybe in, in, in public, they were still worshiping God at this point, in, or in word, in, and not actually in action and deed. But they ultimately rejected God. Matthew Henry said this, So wedded were they to their evil practices that when they could not do them publicly, could not for shame or could not for fear, They would do them in secret, in evidence of their atheism, that they thought what was done in secret was from under the eye of God himself and would not be required. So they thought they were doing this in secret away from the very eyes of God. Verses 13 through 18 is is talking about God was still merciful and patient with his people. Like I said, from the time of Jeroboam to Hosea was almost exactly 200 years of time frame of kings and kingdoms of the kingdom of Israel here. And amid their unfaithfulness, he sent them who? The prophets who came, Elijah, Elijah, and many other prophets that they would have known to turn from their wicked ways and turn to God's commandments. This was this cry, God's patience and his loving kindness towards his covenant people. He wanted to draw them back, yet what did they do? They they stretched out their, their hard necks. They, they were stubborn people. They refused to listen to the word of God coming through the prophets. They had every opportunity to turn. 200 years is, is a long time. It's, it's enough time to turn from their wicked ways. However, they chose not to. And they did not believe in the Lord their God. 
It's interesting here that also that we see that, that even though they decide to reject God, he still uses the possessive adjective, their God. Israel rejected the words of God, though the prophets, and it says in verse 15, they left or despised, as some translations put it, the statues and his covenants that he made with their fathers. Instead, they followed vanity. Some translations use the word false idol. The actual Hebrew word here is havel. It's connected with the same word we see in Ecclesiastes there, vanity, wind, breath. So it's saying that these are, are, are false idols. They are worthless idols. They are, are, they're not real. They, they are vanishing. It, it signifies something of no value whatsoever. So the people rejected the Mosaic Covenant and therefore forfeited the territorial inheritance that they received from the Abrahamic covenant. Syncretism with the foreign religions and gods led to a complete rejection of the one true God. Verse 16 says, it refers back to the idols of the two calves that, that Jeroboam set up 200 years previous. So this practice had been going on for 200 years, this, this, this continued blending of these different cultures and these different idols and these different practices that, that came from what was a true worship of God out of the temple there into something completely different and morphed. And ultimately, they were worshiping who? In verse 16, they were worshiping all the host of heaven, multiple gods. And they served Baal, the worst god that we look at through the Old Testament here. And when they did such things, their hearts became, as Calvin says, a perpetual factory of idols. We were made to worship, and a rejection of God will be followed up by the deception of the world's idols. The syncretistic kingdom of Israel transformation was now complete by verse 17. They sent their sons and daughters through the fire. Imagine that. They sent them through the fire. They had completely rejected God, a loving, kind, merciful, graceful God. And now they were sending their own children to death for their God. They were also practicing divination, enchantment, omens. They sold themselves into evil. These were the very gods and religious practices that God had warned them against back even back in Deuteronomy. They violated most of the moral law found in the Ten Commandments, and as Ralph Davies says, it was a litany of apostasy. They had fallen completely off the map as a result of the rejection of God and their disobedience and unbelief, God removed them out of his sight. It should be a warning to us. When syncretism, when worldliness enters inside the church into us as individuals who should be professing Christians, God does not tolerate someone, him being second place. They were scattered to all the corners of the earth afterwards. This attraction to conforming to the world around us is not unique, as we, as we realize. It's not unique to the Israelites, nor the early church, or, or even the times of Spurgeon. It's, it's here, alive and well today. And we must take heed to these warnings, signs, in our own churches, in our own lives. So we need to understand how to reject the seduction of worldliness, syncretism, and contend for our own faith. I have several different points here of, to hit 
as far as how we actually contend, how we root out, how do we get rid of syncretism, worldliness here. My first point is we need to root out unbelief. As we look back to the children of Israel, this started with their unbelief in the word of God. They began to follow other practices. They didn't believe in the promises that were given to him. They, didn't, they rejected the moral law of God. The seduction to conform to this world and accept practices and worldview and culture is still here today, like I had mentioned. This acceptance from even back to the early church, we think of, was to burn incense. The early church was, was told, you burn incense to Caesar, and you must say, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. And the church rejected that, because Christ is Lord. But there were some who did fall off, some who did give in to this temptation, Many today fear man more than they fear God. And at its core, it is unbelief, just like the children of Israel. It is a desire to be accepted by our friends, our family, our co-workers, and even our government. The world only accepts you if you accept the world. Let me say that again. The world only accepts you if you accept the world. James says friendship with the world is enmity with God. The sin of unbelief is common to all of us, and it must be rooted out, even amongst Christians, even more so with us. Belief and unbelief can be found in opposition in one person as well. We see this in Scripture, Mark 9, 24. It says, I believe, help my unbelief there. There can be conflict there between our belief and unbelief. We must cry out to him in these evil days that we live in, and we must weed out those, that unbelief inside of our own souls. You will be more open to listening to the lies of the enemy and make friends with the world and make a shipwreck of your faith if you do not root out unbelief. You must trust in the Lord and all of his words found in Scripture. And this was a problem in the controversy with the downgrade controversy was, is the word of God truly the word of God. Is it in air? Is it inspired actually by God himself? Or do we fall into this higher criticism, you know, look scientifically at this thing? Oh, yes, there was four different authors, you know, for for Moses and, and going back to Genesis and the and, and uh, the the books of the law there. And they would go into these things and they they critique it and look at, you know, um, how the person, the grammatical structure of, of these things and then decide this couldn't have been just one person. And that, that just sowed seeds of, of doubt inside people's inside a church. And yet this was being preached behind the pulpits for a long time. Even today, we might hear some churches go down this, this route of thinking of higher textual criticism. If we are going to reject worldliness and contend for the faith, we must root out all unbelief, unlike what Israel did. My second point is, is going back to Pastor Patrick, what he spoke about last night, is we need to be a people of prayer. We need to root out unbelief, and we need to be a people of prayer. If I have two main criticisms of the church today as, as just a simple, common layperson, it would, one of them would be we have the, uh, prayer has, not, has fallen on hard times. And I think Patrick mentioned, you know, 
If you try to get somebody to a prayer meeting, it's difficult. If we have chicken, we get all, all sorts of people here, right? <laughs> if we have a good meal. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more concern about what is going on in the world than there are people on their knees. We, we see inside the world. We can, look, we can just turn on the, the, the TV today, right? We, we can see one day, we can see the fall of Afghanistan. The next, we see the apostasy of some prominent Christian figure or some scandal that's going on. The next day, uh, we see you know, a vaccine mandate, and everybody's up in their arms if you're, if you're watching Fox News, right? <laughs> uh, or, or, or the next day after that, it's a border crisis. It just seems like one thing after another after another as, as things are just coming at us. And, and we see you know, conservative evangelicals get all up in arms about these type of issues, are they not? But what I don't see is I don't see the church on their knees praying to God about these issues. And also, this doesn't account for the day-to-day issues, the struggles of family, work, finances, health, relationships uh, that are happening in our lives. And, and uh, we fail to bring these things to the Lord. This is also a form of unbelief, a prayerless life. If you have a prayerless life, we will see an unbelieving life there as well. We know that the word of God simply says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Without that relationship, that connection with God, we are acting not in faith, and we will not be pleasing to our Father. In these times of uncertainty, it would be better time to spend more time in prayer in which the Spirit intercedes for us, then it would be for us to flip on our TV or, or, or open up our, our laptop or our computer. One of the downsides of our age, from, from my personal assessment, is we are too easily distracted and enticed not to pray. You know, I'm sure many of us have gone out to eat, and you know, we, we see the, the young family over there in the corner, and they're all on their phones, right? We, we see that. We're, we're distracted. We have to be continually entertained nowadays. If we're going to contend for the faith, then we must commit ourselves to prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. It's a difficult thing, is it not? To stop, to reflect, to communicate, to, to meditate on, on the things of God. And, and communicate to him via prayer there. These can be difficult tasks for us in a very busy world that we live in, however it's necessary. And my, probably my next second criticism of the church as we are thinking about contending for the faith is we need to have a better doctrine of repentance. Now they sort of go hand in hand, prayer and repentance. Uh, the Israelites revealed their true nature and the secret things and falling uh, for their idols of their world. But God still gave them the opportunity to repent. God still gives us the opportunity to repent of our sins. And he would have forgiven, and he continues to forgive those who ask. First John 1 John 1.9 says uh, that if we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful to just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God is faithful. He, he wants us to repent of these sins and come to him and live the godly life. Thomas Watson said that, that repentance is pure gospel grace. It's an excellent book, an excellent Puritan work there 
uh, on the doctrine of repentance, that we don't hear this being preached very often behind our pulpits anymore. We have many examples of failure to repent found in the Bible, which leads to death. Israel became so syncretistic and failed to repent, even though they were given ample opportunity. In order to contend for the faith, we must repent of those things that have crept in from the world. We can't continue to fight if we have those hidden things that are not exposed to light. We can't contend if we're, if we're, we're secretly, you know, uh, looking at astrology or if, we're, or if we're looking at pornography, if we're doing these things in secret, whatever it is, these things that we don't want revealed and we don't want to come to light. We can't contend for the faith. We're, we're going in there with, without, without our full armor if we do not have full repentance of God and bringing these things and exposing them to the light. Another thing that the church, as we think about contending for the faith, and that Israel failed to do, is their lack of discernment. Discernment comes from knowing Scripture and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We are to be what wise as serpents and harmless as a dove, as Matthew ten sixteen says here. And I was thinking uh, about um, analogies here or, or illustrations, and I grew up on a small little farm. Um, my grandfather was was a, a farmer and carpenter, and uh, they raised sheep. And there's plenty of illustrations in the Bible of sheep, is there not? And uh, and, it, and it's a beautiful illustration how the word of God uses sheep. You know, he, he, the Lord is my shepherd. We are his flock, things like this. Uh, he goes after the, the lost sheep, the lost lamb there. One thing the word of God doesn't associate with sheep is intelligence, though. And if you've ever been around sheep, you would understand why that association is never made. I see a few chuckles out there. So I know some people have been around sheep. They're not an intelligent animal. If you had a goat versus a sheep, you would take the goat. It's much more intelligent. If you wanted to, if you want an animal to stay inside of a fence, you'd probably take the sheep. The goat will get out, you know, ten times out of ten. But a lamb is a dumb animal, and a dumb animal is a dead animal, right? If if they're not taken care of, uh, the word of God doesn't ask act, uh, tell us to be uh, as wise as a lamb or or a sheep it doesn't call it says for us to be as a serpent we're to be wily in our dealings with the world here and harmless as a dove there's a great need for discernment inside the church Uh, looking at modern evangelicalism at large now uh, there's many critiques we could make i mean we could spend you know a whole conference on what's wrong inside the church today and, you know, we could talk about the, the health and wealth that we've mentioned here a few times. Uh, we can uh, talk about uh, um, the worship styles or or vast majority of things, the scandals going on, uh, the immorality that's rampant inside the church. But there needs to be a great discernment. And that's not even dealing with some of the core doctrines inside the church today, too. I mean, there's all sorts of heresies rampant dealing with the atonement, the person of Christ, the person of God, uh, these are significant of what's happening inside the church today. And we need a better discernment of what's going on as we contend for this faith. 
or else these things are going to creep in even in First Baptist Church of Independence if we are unaware of these things and we fail to discern. And finally, my last point here is a call for action or a, a need for action. Too many Christians have decided to sit on the sideline over the last few decades, especially. And I'm a military guy. I'm still in the reserves. Um, I've been deployed three times to Afghanistan. And I remember my first deployment as a young man. Well, I was on board rescue helicopters, and they were deploying those even to more remote areas than what we were initially at. And they would have several individuals go along when those helicopters went up and uh, provide protection or uh, life-saving measures if we were picking up uh, people who were injured and wounded off the battlefield. And we had three people within my career field, myself and, and two people who were above rank than me. Well, the two men who are above rank than me, one of them didn't want to go, and um, he, he had school. He was taking some classes online while he was in Afghanistan, and that was much more important to him. The other man, he had a side job of cutting hair, making like $500 a week. He didn't want to leave to go downrange to these forward bases uh, because he was making too much money. And as I, I was thinking about this, it, it, it reminded me of 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4 here, that the soldier is not to what? Be entangled himself in the affairs of everyday life. You know, the, the soldier, his main primary focus is the combat, the conflict. He needs to be laser focused. And as, as these men were, were entangled with the world, they would say, hey, Will, you're going to go. And every time that helicopter went up, Guess who was going along with them? It wasn't my, my supervisors. They had no interest of doing this whatsoever. They said, Will, you're going to go. You're going to go. And at some point, I didn't even question. I saw a helicopter go up. I knew I was going up. I had focused on the mission at hand. That mission was to go and rescue people's lives. Lives were on the line. It wasn't for me to be ensnared by making money or worrying about my self-education my mission was a military mission, and it was a very important mission to fulfill. Too many Christians have been like my supervisors in times past, just wanting to sit on the sideline, ensnared by this world. The affairs of this world have entangled them. They have been called to action on a very important battlefield, the battlefield for the hearts for the very souls, and yet they've done nothing. We need doers, not just hearers. And this goes not just for, for Pastor Tim. It's not just for, for the deacons of the church. It's for everyone. It's for, for Will Glover, a layman. It's for you just sitting in the pews. It's for everyone. We need doers of the word if we're going to contend for this faith. And this is a real struggle. What we're entering into is something unique in human history as far as a changing from 
postmodern Christianity to something we don't quite understand what it's going to, the outcome's going to be. We're right in the midst of a transitional point in history. It's hard for us to realize and recognize that right now because we're living through it. But this time will be recognized 100, 200, 300 years as a transitional point. And how we as a church deal with it is going to affect the history that is to come after. Now, I'm not saying what we personally do. I, I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I understand these things. But it, just because we believe in a sovereign God doesn't mean that we just sit on our hands and do absolutely nothing either. We need these doers. So if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're raising the next generation of those who will contend for the faith. I tell my wife often that we're raising warriors. Not, not to just get in a fight wherever there's a fight or anything like that, but, but warriors for Christ. They're, they're putting on, we're, we're enabling our children, hopefully, as the best of our ability. And we, we fail as parents. But we're raising to the best of our ability to put on that full armor of God, to go out into that world, to, to know the word of God, to engage world, the world's culture and ideology out there, and to be able to contend for the faith. If you go to work to support your family and your church, we need you to enlist and contend for the faith as well. You don't get to sit on the sideline just because you work 40, 50, 60 hours. I do that too. Right? That, that doesn't give me a reason to, to you know, not help out with the kids or, or help out at the church. If you're a veteran or a seasoned member for Christ, this doesn't give you an excuse either. We need you. It's not time for you to give up or, or clock out. We need your wisdom and your discipleship. And for the young people around here, we need you as well. We need your youth. We need your passion. We need your zeal. We need you on the front lines, right? Contending for the faith. We need everyone who's going to call themselves a Christian to suffer with Christ as we contend for the faith. The warning signs are clear and evident as we look through the history of Israel here, the waning years. Let us not be like Hosea and the kingdom of Israel and just go out and nothing else ever happens. Let us go and fight earnestly for the faith in Jesus Christ, the one and only true Savior out there. And if you haven't received the, the message of Jesus Christ, if you've never uh, personally called him as your Lord and Savior, then it's time for you to submit your life to him as well. We don't know what the day or the age or the hour that we live in, and we don't know how long we have. But my, my encouragement to you, my, my cry to you, is to flee to Christ. He is the only way. Jesus Christ. With that, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to be faithful to your word. Lord, as we look at our own lives and, and, and reflect about how we've fallen short how many times we've made mistakes and sinned. 
Lord, we do repent of our ways. Help us not to be like the children of Israel there who turned to other gods as they were infiltrated by worldliness and the cares and affections of this world, and they forgot you. Lord, help, you, help us to be in your word, to be in prayer. Lord, to, to seek out this unbelief in our life, to be faithful to your word. Help us to live upright and outstanding Christian lives. Lord, we don't want to be legalistic and, and, uh, and be down on, on things that the Word of God is not, uh, does not say. Lord, but we do want to be faithful to your Word in every aspect that it calls us as Christians, New Testament believers, to be. And Lord, as we close out this conference, as we leave these doors here, Lord, may we do so in boldness, help us to speak the truth at our workplaces, at our homes, with our friends, with our family, that we may contend for your faith and be faithful to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.